And so I want people to visualize with me what it looks like on the American map if all of a sudden 4,000 dots appeared on the refugee resettlement landscape, right, representing each college or university, the inventory that opens up in terms of housing, the community support that provides, the integration support, just the landscape itself will look vastly different. And for the long term, it'll be much more sustainable because college and universities are there. They're there forever. But in transforming the refugee resettlement landscape, I'm hoping that higher ed will be transformed. Right? our research, our teaching, our service learning. And I think this is a really meaningful way to transform what diversity, equity, and inclusion means or to contribute to that in really meaningful ways and to, sort of to put our money where our mouth is when we talk about indigeneity and acknowledging indigeneity and, and addressing issues of dispossession and displacement. Everyone, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we get to speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Dia Abdo. Dia Abdo is a professor of English in the Department of English and Creative Writing at Guilford College, a second generation Palestinian refugee born and raised in Jordan. Dr. Abdo's teaching, research, and scholarship focus on Arab women writers and Arab and Islamic feminisms. Her book, American Refuge, True Stories of the Refugee Experience is forthcoming from Steerforth Press in 2022. And I just want to say that Dia was kind enough to get me an advanced copy of the book, and it is compelling. So we're going to talk about the book during our conversation here, but I highly encourage our listeners to put it on their, their reading list for the upcoming year. Dr. Abdo is the recipient of the very prestigious J.M. Kaplan Fund's Innovation Prize. She was selected for the 2021 cohort in recognition of her work in founding Every Campus a Refuge, which advocates for housing refugee families on college and university campus grounds and supporting them in their resettlement. And Dia directs the flagship chapter at Guilford College. Now, her bio is linked in the show notes so that you can see more details about her professional journey. But for now, Dia, I am so delighted to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here, Melissa. So I want to dive right in and ask you about the Every Campus a Refuge initiative, which I believe goes by ECAR. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Correct. And you founded this at Guilford College. I should uh, note for our listeners, uh, for those that don't know, Guilford College is located in North Carolina. Uh, what's the inspiration for the founding of ECAR? What was your founding vision and how does ECAR intersect with your own life story? Thank you. Um, I founded Every Campus a Refuge in 2015. And it was really at the sort of height of the Syrian refugee crisis. I was just sort of going along, um, doing my thing as an English professor. And um, that image that mobilized the world broke our collective hearts. Um, the image of the little boy, Aylan Kurdi, who drowned with his mother and his brother as they were trying to find safety and security out of Syria. Um, I was also moved by that image like everybody else and um, felt really, I think sort of just destitute and um, wondered um, in, I think 
deep ways about my role as a as a as an educator um, and as a professor, as a mentor to my students, what we can do in that moment that could be meaningful, that could be material to support um, refugees and and you know everybody who um, is seeking safety and security, which is what refugees are. And as I was thinking about what I could do, feeling stuck in Greensboro, North Carolina, um, I saw that Pope Francis had called on every parish in Europe to host a refugee family. And I was really inspired by that. That was the moment that inspired every campus a refuge. Pope Francis, of course, was uh, calling on a radical hospitality for communities to take in refugees, to welcome them, to embrace the other, the stranger, um, to provide a safe space. And it occurred to me, I mean, I, I thought that was a brilliant idea of his beyond radical hospitality, which is of course really germane to all faith traditions. And in my particular case, I'm of a Bedouin background to Bedouins, especially um, the, the give and refuge to a person who is seeking refuge and sanctuary in your midst. Um, but what I thought was brilliant about that was Pope Francis wasn't calling on countries to take in refugees. He was calling on small communities. And it struck me that it is really the small communities that can do the most good. That in a way we were discreet, distinct, right? That we could operate in ways that were outside of countries or states. Um, and then it occurred to me that a parish, right? A small city with people who have shared values and, and a shared commitment to that community is exactly what a college or university is. We are exactly that. We are small cities with shared values, with shared ethos. We're incredibly cohesive. And there's so many of us, there's 4,000 of us in this country. And so I was really inspired by that, by that idea of small communities playing a big role in hosting and supporting refugees in their resettlement. And so I took that idea. And I, I, when he said every parish, I said, why not every campus? Um, I am of um, Muslim background and I'm Arab. And uh, in Arabic, the word for campus is haram, which um, really translates into sanctuary. And so it made sense sort of for a college or university campus to live out its values, not only as a cohesive small community that has a lot of resources to do this work, but as a safe space, right? We always talk about college and universities as safe spaces for their students. We're very clear about who can, you know, that, that our students can feel safe on campus. And so it was just, um, I think a natural pivot um, from that inspiration to um, every campus, a refuge. Um, the founding vision really was in line with the Pope's call for every campus, every college or university, not, not only in this country, but in the world to host one refugee family and to support them in their resettlement. There are millions of displaced individuals in the world, very few of them resettle. And the resettlement landscape in the United States is, is such that requires a lot of support from the community, especially when it comes to housing and other, um, I think, integration support. So the founding vision was really to have every campus in this country um, do that work and, and heed that call. Um, ECAR intersects, I think, very intimately with my um, own life story. I am the daughter of Palestinian refugees. My family was displaced. Um, in 1967, and they came to Jordan as refugees. 
And like many refugees experienced a disconnect, a lack of welcome, lack of integration, even though they were crossing a very, very narrow border. I mean, they just crossed the river, right? They went from the West Bank to the East Bank of the River Jordan, and still in a place where people spoke the same language, ate relatively the same kinds of food, um, they still felt out of place. They felt out of place. And I grew up on my grandmother's stories of just how much she missed Palestine and how desperately she wanted to go back. So second homes are hard. They're not homes, right? That they're, they're very much sort of an a place where you just exist because you have to. You're there because you need to be there, although you really would rather be somewhere else. Um, and so that, that sense of loss and lack of integration just stayed with me um, of my family's experience, what it meant to be displaced. And then I came to the US as a student on an F-1 visa and was here um, during September 11th. And you know, if you're Arab and Muslim in a post-September 11th America, your experiences are also shaped by that otherness. And so I think all of those things, sort of the, the ethos of welcome and acceptance and embracing uh, undergirds every campus of refuge. The goal is to create communities that welcome unconditionally, that support, that love, that provide hospitality, and that offer resources for true holistic integration to newcomers. Wow, what a, what a compelling um, vision and I didn't realize it's only been a few years. This is 2015. So uh, the the work you've done in that short amount of time is is uh, impressive and significant. Now I was going to ask you about why you chose higher ed as the setting for the work, but you've you've beautifully explained that in your um, your description uh, about the vision. Maybe you can go a little deeper and and describe what the work is actually like uh, mm -hmm. on a college campus um, and what happens each day? How are the students and the faculty involved? And what value does the presence of ECAR bring to its campus host? Because I think that may give a, a, an even broader understanding of why you chose higher education as the, as the setting for this work. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I chose it because um, as, as I told you, um, that it is very much in line with a small city and what a small city can do. And so if we're putting the responsibility on smaller communities rather than big countries that it's just so, I think, find so unwieldy, <laughs> um, then uh, college universities make perfect sense. But it's also the place that I love and that I've been in for a very long time. I've been in higher ed, you know, all my life. I've, I've rarely worked outside of it. So it is very much, I, I very much see myself in academia, believe in its promise believe in its impact, believe in its presence as active members of our communities. Um, I think one of the stories that I like to tell about higher education um, and why for me, it just was such a natural landscape for this kind of work. When, when 2015, um, or what was happening in 2015 with Syrian refugees is that we saw so many human beings, especially moving across Europe Right. They were trying to get to Germany, and there was a moment where, where uh, Hungary um, was actually refusing entry and um, not allowing refugees to pass through. And I was truly sort of inspired also by Austrian activists who drove down in convoys 
um, to, you know, bring up refugees from Hungary to Germany. And I thought, what a material embodied act, right? Like you have a car and you can do something with that car. I think part of what we all felt here in, in many parts of the world is that um, lack of embodiedness. Like we couldn't do something real. We could send money, we could do lectures, I could teach about things, but I wanted to do something truly physical and embodied. And it really allowed me, the, the, Every Campus a, a Refuge allowed me to, to show and, and, and see for myself how embodied campus spaces are. They're actual places, right? We think of them as places where intellectual things happen and we talk and we discuss and we have great conversations and we teach our students, but they're brick and mortar. We have housing, we have clinics, we have cafeterias, we have human resources. And so this idea of an embodied campus rather than just a beehive of thinkers is really why higher education is perfect for this because it is a place and a space um, that can be used um, for this effort. So we do that. That's what ECAR is. In 2015, I had this idea. And I kid you not, this is the point where everybody says, what? Guilford is special. Like, yes, it is. I walked into our president's office uh, during her open office hours, I think, and, and said, um, Jane, I would like a house on our campus to host refugees who are coming to Greensboro because Greensboro is a refugee resettlement hub. There are lots of refugee resettlement hubs in the U.S., um, and Greensboro is one of them. We've been uh, welcoming refugees for the last um, 40, 50 years. And so we could very easily be that city that, that welcomes refugees and receives refugees. What can we as a campus do to support that? So um, I said, I want a house. And she said, okay. And every campus a refuge started in that January of 2016. Our first hosted guest was Cheps, who, whose story you read about in the book. Cheps is um, Ugandan and he's um, LGBTQ. And, and so the Refugee Resettlement Agency really felt that he would be, he would be safer on our campus um, when he arrived to Greensboro. And so we've started hosting refugees on our campus since 2016. We've been hosting refugees on our campus for the last seven years. We've hosted 66 so far, and currently we're hosting 18 Afghan evacuees on Guilford's campus. Into, in the ECAR house still exists. It's the ECAR house. We've been using it for the last seven years, which is wonderful. But our last president, who was an interim president, okayed the use of a second house that was just sitting there empty. Nobody was using it. And that's the point of every campus a refuge. College and universities have a lot of underutilized resources. It could be a faculty house, a staff house, maybe a suite of apartments, a, a, a couple of dorm rooms that might be sitting there for a few months. Why not use them for free temporary housing for newcomers um, coming into your city? So on, a, on any given day, uh, when we're hosting refugees, and we are consistently on Guilford's campus, um, they're staying on our campus. They can avail themselves of all of the amenities and facilities that are on our campus and which really support sort of the full integration, right? So they can access the gym. They can go to the library. They can go to the cafeteria. If we have an artist on our campus, which we did, they can access the art studio and the supplies. And eventually, actually, that artist, we exhibited his work uh, in our um, gallery. And I tell people, where else is there housing and a gallery, except on a college campus? Also a city, of course, but yes, a college campus is really special that way. And so while we're hosting refugees on our campus, they're living on campus in a house uh, or an apartment. Um, our faculty and staff are engaged as trained and vetted volunteers 
to provide case management support that is assigned to us by the Refugee Resettlement Agency because we partner with the Refugee Resettlement Agency who assigns us um, the, uh, the case, whether it's a family, a couple, or an individual. Um, the faculty and the students and the, and the staff provide EL instruction. They could provide childcare, help with filling out forms, transportation. They certainly welcome at the airport. They provide meals. They share meals. But we also provide resources that are really unique to a college or university campus. So, you know, participating in soccer games or events on campus or auditing classes. Um, so there's a lot that a campus can do and provide to support, as I said, the holistic integration and, and foster that sense of belonging that I know my family missed when they were, um, when they were in Jordan. Um, in terms of the value that ECAR brings to its campus host, I mean, there are so many. So first of all, you really manifest how you are part of your community. It's a material representation, a material rep manifestation of your um, position in the community. You are offering housing, temporary housing and support to newcomers who are coming into your city and will form part of your community. Their well-being is part of your well-being. And I think colleges and universities are really good at wanting to be engaged in their communities. This is a really good way to do that. It's just a direct way, such a material way to be part of your community where there are many immigrants and migrants and, and refugees. It's important to, to remember that demographic that our cities and communities and small towns are made up of, of newcomers as well as native born um, folks. Um, every campus refuge also brings people together. So I wanna give you an example of the last hosting instance. Um, so we welcomed 18 Afghan evacuees to our campus last week, over the last two weeks. And um, it's a family of seven and then uh, the rest are individuals. And when we put out the call, that the, because when we do every campus refuge on our campus, we furnish the house from the toothpaste to the mattress, right? Everything in between, fully furnished. So that when the family leaves or the individual leaves, they take all of that with them to their new home. They're set up completely and they can save the stipend that they bring with them. That's incredibly limited. It's $1,000. They can just save that so that they can have that, those funds when they move off campus and can pay their rent and, and, and afford other things. Um, and so when we put out the call, we got $6,000 almost immediately in, in uh, purchases online and then $6,000 in in-kind donations. We had over 40 volunteers give up um, dozens of hours of their time to set up. And so it brought us together in a way that was incredibly beautiful to watch, right? And it brought our alumni together, our board members, our donors. I mean, when you're thinking about alumni engagement, I can't tell you how many people on Facebook, whenever we share anything on social media, say, I'm so proud of my alma mater. What a great way to engage alumni and to engage folks who watch us from afar and feel so proud that they're part of um, this effort. Um, I think at a time when we are struggling as higher education with how to provide meaningful experiential education to our students. This is a great way to do that. Every campus or refuge at Guilford College is associated with a minor. Students can actually get credit for doing this work. So, yeah. So um, it's a really, um, and of course we do it in ways that are very mindful of the privacy, dignity, agency of the folks we hold, we, we host. And so um, th those, their practices, we have best practices about how we do that learning and that teaching um, that does not infringe on people's privacy and, and, and their dignity. 
Um, but it is um, really an important way for students to sort of have a global education locally, right? So at a time when we're struggling with what experiential education, but also I think with access to global and international education to, to students who cannot afford study abroad, um, this is kind of study abroad at home, right? It's a yeah. really interesting way to, uh, to engage students in global issues on a local um, scale. Um, it um, allows students to be involved in something in their communities in ways that make them feel like they're doing something meaningful and material, and that's really important. Um, for students right now who are questioning, I think, the relevance of their education. <laughs> um, I hear that a lot about my students um, right now, a lot of anxiety about, what, about their degrees and, and what they're going to be doing in the world. So this is a really meaningful way. Uh, 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 it's a solution to a problem. It's, it's a real solution to a real problem. And, and, yeah. and people feel really um, invested in it and feel good about being part of it. Well, and I, I know this generation in particular that is now coming into college, that that's a really important um, issue for them um, and something that so many of them are grappling with. And, uh, you know, not that this is why you're doing it, but the presence of ECAR on a campus and the opportunity to be involved is, is actually a, a wonderful recruitment, <laughs> recruitment. Uh, message for prospective students because it does directly touch that desire and motivation that so many 18, 19, 20 year olds have right now. I love this generation that's coming into college. Uh, we're going to be so much better off and better served as a society, I think, by the characteristics that I'm seeing and I'm reading about. So let me, let me ask you, um, how many chapters in the United States are there at this point? So there, uh, the way that ECAR works when we first started, we said every campus hosts one family, just do it once. And so there are campuses that have done that just once, uh, like Northampton Community College, uh, Rollins College. Um, and then there are chapters that just kept doing it like Guilford College. So Wake Forest University, Lafayette College have been hosting for years. Um, but we've also recently onboarded because of the Afghan evacuee crisis, additional chapters like um, Russell Sage, and Siena College, both in Albany, Old Dominion, right. in Virginia. So uh, all told, there are 10. And I think we will grow right now. For the longest time, every campus of refuge has lived under a presidential administration that has been not the most conducive to refugee resettlement or refugee uh, admissions. Uh, and also the pandemic, which has really shifted the way that we do things physically on campuses. So hopefully as we move out of that, and I think mobilized by the need to immediately support Afghan evacuees, we will see more chapters. Yeah, well, and that leads nicely to uh, the prize that you have recently received, the JMK Innovation Prize. So first of all, congratulations on that. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with this award, it is funded by the JM Kaplan Fund, which every year since I believe 2015, has reached across America to identify and to elevate early stage projects with transformative potential in the fields of social justice, the environment and heritage con conservation. Now awardees receive 175,000 over three years to support their innovation. And, and as I said at the outset, ECAR uh, is a 2021 recipient, which is an enormous honor. Only 10 are selected. 
uh, from nearly 3,000 applicants each year. So that is really, really fabulous. So tell us how you're planning to use the prize funding uh, to further scale ECAR and what's your long-term vision uh, at this point? I mean, getting the JMK was, I think, a game changer for us. Not only the funding itself, but truly just the prestige of the award allowed people to hear about us, to know about us, to reach out to us. Uh, I think there's so much going on out there just in terms of initiatives that it is hard to sort of break through and say, okay, how about this thing over here um, called Every Campus a Refuge? So I think the JMK has provided a venue for us to reach people's ears and hearts and minds. But the funding will be used to staff Every Campus a Refuge. So as you probably know, initiatives like this, they sort of live with one person who's really passionate about them. And then, you know, you, you do it above and beyond the classes that you teach and the committees that you serve on. And the, the, the funding will allow us to truly staff every campus a refuge so that we can scale up. And the way we do that, obviously, is that we, we implement on other campuses. We train other campuses to do that. We follow up with our other campuses. So this allows us the space and time and funding to be able to implement uh, every campus a refuge across um, the nation. Our long-term vision. So the mission is every campus a refuge, right? That's, it's sort of clear, like the, the Pope, every parish hosts a refugee family. We want every campus in this country to host a refugee family. The long-term vision is really to transform the landscape of refugee resettlement, to have higher education play a key role in transforming the refugee resettlement landscape of this country. Right now, the refugee resettlement landscape looks uh, in need of support, to say it you know, uh, kindly. Um, over the last couple of years, it's been decimated by executive orders, by policies, by practices um, that have closed resettlement agencies and their offices that you know, have laid off staff and that have really damaged community-based infrastructure. When you're not receiving refugees, those positions go away. Refugee resettlement agency offices close because refugees aren't coming. Because, and then the infrastructure that used to be there to support that influx then is no longer needed and then disappears. And so now we need to pivot because all of a sudden there are 75,000 Afghan evacuees in this country when we have not even been prepared for the last couple of years, welcoming 10 or 15,000, right? So we need to support the refugee resettlement landscape right now, but we also need to think about the long-term. And so I want people to visualize with me what it looks like on the American map if all of a sudden 4,000 dots appeared on the refugee resettlement landscape, right, representing each college or university, the inventory that opens up in terms of housing, the community support that provides, the integration support, just the landscape itself will look vastly different and for the long term, it'll be much more sustainable because college and universities are there. They're there forever, right? Hopefully, <laughs> um, institutions last for a long time. Guilford's been around for, you know, over 150 years, um, and hopefully for you know another hundred years to come. And so we'll always be here. We are sustainable in that way and can sustain the refugee resettlement landscape. But in transforming the refugee resettlement landscape, I'm hoping that higher ed will be transformed, right? Our research. Mm -hmm our teaching, our service learning. I keep thinking about what we're grappling with, the reckoning that's happening right now in higher ed with issues of indigeneity, right? We understand that we stand on indigenous land and that we need to acknowledge that and that our existence really um, 
was built on the dispossession of people who were here before, that we are part of systems that dispossess other people elsewhere. The Afghan, the Afghan evacuees, they were indigenous to their country and now they're displaced. So there's a reckoning with higher ed in terms of what, what do we do? What, what do we do because we're part of that, because we've inherited that? How can we participate in a way that's really meaningful to our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts <laughs> and initiatives? And I think this is a really meaningful way to transform what diversity, equity, and inclusion means or to contribute to that in really meaningful ways and to, sort of to put our money where our mouth is when we talk about indigeneity and acknowledging indigeneity and, and addressing issues of dispossession and displacement. There has never been a better time to study higher education. And the Bay Path University Master's Degree Program in Higher Education Administration has been designed with this in mind. Through the highly practical and relevant coursework, you will learn to identify emerging trends and apply cutting edge practices to address the challenges faced by higher education professionals today. Classes start every eight weeks and are taught entirely online by supportive professionals who have deep knowledge and skill in the practice of higher education. This Bay Path program offers unique concentrations in enrollment management, institutional advancement, and online teaching and program administration. There's even a joint entry track with a doctoral program in higher education leadership and organizational studies for highly qualified applicants. Whether you are already a higher education professional or you're looking to switch professions to work at a college or university, the Masters in Higher Education Administration from Bay Path University will expand your career opportunities and provide you with personal mentoring and lifelong networks of like-minded professionals. Take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. The need for qualified administrators in higher education has never been greater. Again, that's baypath.edu slash higheredadmin. Now, this was a good segue to the book, because I do want to talk a little bit about the book uh, that you have authored. Uh, why did you write this book? Uh, again, it's entitled American Refuge, True Stories of the Refugee Experience. So what are you hoping that the book will do in terms of ECAR? And who is your intended audience? So I wrote this book because... Um, the publisher reached out to me <laughs> and, and said, good. that is a good reason. Um, and said, um, you know, they're, they're looking for someone who can write about the refugee experience, right? This is a good moment to speak to those experiences. And, um, and I'm so pleased and, and just delighted and honored um, that they reached out to me. I have direct intimate experience with refugees on Guildford's campus. Um, and, um, and also I'm a, a writer. And so this was a great way to sort of coalesce those two passions into something um, that can do that can do something good in the world. So I think the book, in terms of every campus a refuge, um, can certainly um, allow people to understand 
the refugee experience and why we need welcome, why we need support, why we need integration for newcomers, because the refugee experience from beginning to end is incredibly um, challenging. Um, so I, I, I wrote this book because I was asked and I was glad that I was asked. I think I would have written it anyway. Um, and my, the audience that I see for this book is really incredibly a wide spectrum. It, I think it works for folks who know very little about refugees or might have misconceptions, misperceptions, myths. There are so many circulating myths about refugees and the refugee experience. And also I think it works for people who know a lot, um, including myself, um, but who want stories that present the experience without tokenizing, without fetishizing, without dehumanizing. I think it's really hard. We tr I think narratives always, their goal is to humanize, right? I think that's sort of a platitude. Yes, of course, we want to human, but, but, you know, at some point we have to say humans are humans. I mean, humanizing them is, is, is kind of a, they should already be human. So right. I think there are some ways in which narratives, especially narr narratives of tragedy can be really dehumanizing because they can objectify people. They can fetishize them. They can make a spectacle out of them. Um, I want to share with you experiences that I've had as a teacher. I teach Arab women writers. I teach African women writers. I teach, um, you know, literature from parts of the world where hard things happen. And I began noticing, uh, just noticing, but also feedback from my students in the classroom that it was hard. It was hard hearing those stories, especially for students who had similar backgrounds, that they felt their experiences were being put on display, that their pain was being put on display, and that they didn't know how useful that was. Like, what were we doing with that information other than making a spectacle out of it? And, and so I thought, well, if I were a professor and I wanted a book that gave me information, but also did it in a way that maintained the dignity of the people whose stories we were telling, and they could be the stories that were similar to students' stories in our classroom, because we all have students, myself included, who have experienced displacement and, and, and lack of integration and lack of welcome. So this is also a book for, for people who teach about the refugee experience and who know a lot about it, but want a narrative that does not put people's pain and tragedy on display and rather uses that, uh, that narrative to bust myths about the refugee experience while maintaining the dignity of the stories that we're telling. Well, and as you say, your book is based on formal interviews that you conducted with American refugees. And in your note at the book's beginning, you write that in truth, anybody, can become a refugee. Can you tell us what you meant by that or what you mean by that? Absolutely. So a refugee, I mean, just the standard definition is, or the, usually the really the legal definition is, is someone who cannot return to their home country. They have fled because if they return, they will likely be killed or their children will be killed. And so a refugee is someone who is seeking safety and security for a variety of reasons. And those reasons apply to every human being on the planet. Your race, your ethnicity, your religion, your political identity, your social group, right? Any one of us at any moment can have an identity marker that is under attack. I can tell you that when my parents and my grandparents were living in Palestine, they didn't think they were going to be refugees. Of course not, right? That, that's not something that one anticipates. Um, 
And now when we're thinking about climate disasters, sadly refugees who become refugees because of climate disasters are not designated as legal refugees, but they are absolutely human beings who are seeking safety and security. And so people who have to leave their homes because their homes are on fire and cannot return because there is nothing to return to, um, that can happen to anybody. And so I think it's because one of the big myths about refugees is, is that they are over there, right? They're not us, mm -hmm. especially if we look like a certain kind of person, if we're white or if we're, you know, whatever kind of religion or, um, and that's not true over time, over history, people from every race, every religion have become refugees. And that could at any time be us. We live in relatively stable environments, but we've seen how those can become unstable very quickly. And, um, and so, yes, I think that's the reason is because we are, refugees are human beings and any human being can become a refugee um, at any point. And that's a really helpful framing for the book. Um, I'm so glad you included that at the beginning of the book because it does, it does cause one to stop and, and really think about one's own biases and uh, those um, perceptions that that we have many of many of which just are not borne out by the the actual experience and that's where the stories that you tell are so so very helpful they paint a picture about refugees and their life situations which is oftentimes at odds with these um these inaccurate perceptions that linger um in our in our country and in our communities so from your interviews, what is it that you believe is most important for all of us to understand about refugees, about the refugee experience? And what is it that refugees want the world to know? So are there a few themes that you can talk about? Absolutely. I think if I want, I, and I, I will talk about the themes, but I think one of the things that strikes me about what refugees might want people to know is that they're not just refugees. Refugee is a term that we use to describe an experience of forced displacement where then you are vetted to sort of prove that you cannot return, right? Um, but I think refugees don't think of themselves as refugees. In fact, many refugees don't like that term at all. It's a, it's a legal term that allows, facilitates resettlement. Um, and so I think what people want, what refugees would want people to know is that they are so much more, right? Um, some of the themes that the book addresses really speak to that, that, that when we mean refugee, there are so many myths around that, that, that the book seeks to dismantle, seeks to bust, and, um, and that refugees are constantly butting up against in their daily um, experiences. So one of the themes is that um, refugees never leave their homes because they want to, right? So that is a given. Refugees leave because they cannot stay where they are. Their lives are at stake. Um, they love their homes. I mean, I just, you know, hearing my grandmother constantly, that's a constant that she talked about all the time, but, but hearing people talk about how much they miss their home and, and how much they would wanna be back there, but they can't be, um, is really one of the, one of the important themes. Um, another, another important theme is that refugees are eventually resettled. And that's not true. The stories of the people that you meet, that's less than 1% typically of, of the refugee experience. 99% of refugees remain in camps 
for generations. They are never resettled, never, right? They settled for living in an unsettled situation, right? A camp is on the periphery of a country. It's demarcated as separate, as different as other. Um, often most refugees are stateless in the sense that they don't even have work authorization or you know, numbers that identify them as, they, they never have a pathway to citizenship, 99% of them. The less than 1% who resettle in the US have a pathway to citizenship. Um, other countries resettle refugees, most refugees, 99% of them do not resettle. Um, refugees are carefully, carefully vetted. One of the myths that you must hear is, oh my God, who are these people who are being resettled here? How do we know they're not X, Y, or Z? How do we know they're not terrorists? That's because they have to go through a two to five year process of biometrics and interviews that are incredibly dehumanizing to prove that they are unable to go back to where they come from. They go back in a heartbeat, right? But they're constantly being tasked to prove that they are worthy of human support. Um, and that's incredibly painful too. Um, another myth, another theme that you see in the book is uh, that refugees receive a lot of support when they get here. And that's not true. They receive a $1,000 stipend. That's the one thing, that's one time. They have to pay back their plane ticket. Sometimes if you're a family of 10, that's over $10,000 that you have to pay back. So you have to pay your plane ticket. You have to pay for your rent as soon as you land, your food as soon as you land, your furniture as soon as you land on $1,000, which is why it's really important to have something like e-car because at least you can save that $1,000 for a few months until you settle in um, and get your social security number and get pay stubs so that you can afford to live somewhere that's safe once you move off campus. Um, Another myth that I think the book busts is that refugees sort of, the solution to their problem is coming to the US and that's not true. You know, resettlement doesn't always necessarily mean happiness. Resettlement means safety, but it doesn't mean that you're happy here, right? Many times it means homesickness, it means loneliness, it means disconnect. Um, and so resettlement is incredibly challenging and, 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 and emotionally um, uh, difficult. Um, so, so those are some of the themes um, that we see in the stories of, of the folks that we meet in the book. So of all the stories you have heard uh, during your time conducting the interviews, are there one or two that have just uh, stuck with you more deeply? Yeah. And I want to offer a note of clarification here for our readers. All of these stories I knew very intimately, right? So these are people I've known for years. I knew these stories, but because I wanted to be ethical about telling those stories, um, I asked for official interviews so that I could be told those stories in an interview setting so that people can share what they wanted to share and not share what they didn't want to share. Um, and so the things that struck me the most were actually things that I knew before. And then when they were told to me again in an interview really struck me even more. Um, one of the most, one of the things that struck me is um, how, dangerous the journey is out of Syria as it was for Um Fihmi's family. Um, they're the first Syrian family that we hosted in our campus. And I cannot imagine the stress and anxiety of seeing your neighbors being slaughtered and knowing that you're next. And really, I mean, getting together everybody without, you can't take anything with you. You get everybody together in the dead of night, the entire family, mom, dad, you know, eight or nine daughters, their spouses, their children, 
and trying to make it out alive with everybody alive. I think what struck me about Umpehbi's story when she told me that journey, leaving Syria, going through Jordan, staying in the camps, but that journey out of Syria and out of imminent uh, death was how proud she was that they all made it to Jordan without any of the women being violated because that was such a, a common thing. That, that it was okay. They lost money. They lost homes. They almost lost one of the children um, in the flurry of a, of a sort of, a, you know, the chaos of, of one of the events while they were fleeing from one city to the next. Um, they had given one of their children to be watched by somebody and, and um, you know, couldn't find that child for a few hours. Um, but what struck me was just how much, how proud they were that they were, that they kept the honor intact, um, which I thought was really moving. And um, I think the second story that really moved me was um, Marwa's experience. Her, in the early days of the pandemic, her son, um, who was six at the time, got COVID and it was very, very serious. And he had to be hospitalized in the ICU for a week in another town here in uh, North Carolina. And she couldn't be with him. And just the lack of access to language, just, I mean, the, how isolating it must have been to not be with family, to not be able to communicate, to not see your son for seven days and not knowing if you're gonna see him at the end of those seven days. Um, that was really heart-wrenching, you know, especially when we're thinking about how the pandemic was hard for so many of us, imagining how hard it must be for people who are newcomers here and, and are really just struggling to, to fit in, to survive, and then to have something like that happen to them on top of that. Mm. Well, and that's, thank you for giving us that glimpse into the, the many stories that are, that are in your book and that um, are enlightening in so many ways uh, for the readers. So um, in your book, you make the point that we should be doing the work of radical hospitality and radical accountability, not simply because we can, but because we must. And I know you talked about this a little bit at the beginning, so I want to return to this and ask you to clarify, clarify what you mean by this. So when I started Every Campus a Refuge, it was truly inspired by Pope Francis, who was embodying radical hospitality. And radical hospitality is about community coming together to offer welcome. For me, ideologically, that was brilliant, right? But also it suggested a, sort of a thing that you do extra. Right, like it's something that you do out of the goodness of your heart. And over the years, my thinking about Every Campus a Refuge as an initiative, as a higher education initiative, shifted from that it's something that we can do because we have the resources to something that we do because of who we, to something we should do because of who we are, right? So radical accountability to me suggests something that it's not a choice, right? Radical hospitality, I guess maybe can be a choice. You step out of yourself to do it. Radical accountability is you step into, you lean into who you are. You step into who you are to do something you must do. And we spoke a little bit about this earlier when I said campuses are facing a, higher education is facing a reckoning right now. We speak about the, the importance of understanding that we, that we sit on indigenous land. What does that mean? Our students, as you said, are changing their idea of social activism is no longer bring the protest to the street. It's bring the protest to the quad, right? Like how is your campus falling short on its equity practices, equitable practices, on its anti-racism, 
on its um, on its fight against xenophobia. So this to me suggests that that students understand that we, that institutions are structures, and that we as structures obviously have power and authority and practice practices that are probably systemically racist or xenophobic, or that's why we have diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, right? Because we understand that we need to shift those structures and we need to dismantle those structures. And so this kind of work where we're saying, yes, we understand that our structures have been isolated and isolating and that we have existed within privileges um, that now we need to dismantle. Every campus for, a refuge for me is an embodiment of that. When you say, yes, we're gonna open up our campus to host refugees on our campus, that's a material manifestation of accountability to structures, to systems. Not only, as I said, are we parts of systems that were built on the lands of dispossessed individuals, but we're parts of systems that create dispossession and displacement around the world. We're accountable for that. We need to do something about that. We need to participate in the solution to that. Um, and so I think it's, our, our students are calling on us to do it. This, this, this existential crisis of how are we relevant? How are we meaningful in the world? This is something really relevant and meaningful that we can do. And I think we should do it. Um, oh, in, in, indeed. You know, it, it, as I'm listening to you, it, it, it strikes me. One of the things that so many colleges and universities struggle with is how to bridge the gap between talking the talk and walking the walk. Uh, as it relates to equity, diversity, and inclusion. And the work that you are describing, uh, not only uh, is it an embodiment, but it, it, gives, it gives a campus the actual means to, to, walk, to walk the walk and put, put that intent into practice. Um, and you know, for, that, for that reason, as well as for all of the other reasons you, you've spelled out, make, make this such um such an, an obvious it, it, it's a, it seems like a no-brainer in some ways i know a, it does a college campus should should want to do this which which leads to my very last question and um that that has to do with if somebody's listening and they they want to know more they want to explore hosting a campus of ecar on their campus what what should they do what's the first step that is a great question um I think they should reach out to me. <laughs> so okay. I will, hopefully you will provide my email, but we also have a website, everycampusarefuge.net, which has a lot of really great information. So if this is something you think would work on your campus, and as you said, Melissa, it's a no brainer. It should work on any and every campus, even non-residential campuses that can probably, a lot of campuses own property, whether it's a house or whatever it is that's close to adjacent to campus, you can do this. It's incredibly cost effective in the sense that if it's a house that's just sitting there empty, you're not really paying anything um, um, to, um, to take on this initiative. Um, or at the most, you might be paying rent for five or six months um, to do something like this. So explore our website, uh, reach out to me, but find, find your people on campus. Find people who are like-minded like like you who want to do something like this. Usually those are the folks in uh, certain classes that teach refugee and immigrant studies. They might be in centers that focus on service learning, community engagement, uh, globalization, internationalization efforts, um, because this is very much an experiential initiative that allows students to engage in really meaningful ways 
with international and global issues. Um, and so find your folks and then have a conversation about your campus culture. Um, is this something that we can directly approach the administration with like I did? Or is it something that you need to put together a proposal for like Lafayette did? Um, what, what do you need to do to build in community support and buy-in? And um, part of my job as the director of Every Campus a Refuge, the national organization, is to support campuses implement this. So please reach out to me and I will help you um, from the beginning uh, until the end of the process. That's great. We will be sure to include the website link and your contact information in the the episode show notes. So Dia, thank you so, so very much. I'm excited for your book to come out. And I would encourage folks to be on the lookout for that as well and to be sure to get it and to read it uh, and to follow up. If this is if if this uh, has struck a chord within you, even if you have no idea if this is something that your campus can handle, it sounds like you're open to having conversations uh, and exploring in more detail what it would take. And so I would encourage folks to, to follow up with you and uh, hopefully we can uh, bring those um, many lights all across the United States. I loved your imagery of the 4,000, the 4,000 dots all over the United States where this kind of work uh, may someday be happening. So anyway, Dia, thank you so much. And I wish you all the best in your ongoing, ongoing work. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CHALUP, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious U community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.